We are all types of high-tech here this morning. Um, all right. Okay. Welcome. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Um, you will find the, the insert, the notes for this morning's message in your bulletin. Luke chapter 1. And, and again, I just want to stop. That This is a wonderful addition, the screen, everything. God is good. Um, and we are most thankful for that. As you turn to Luke chapter 1, this week, our second message is another part of the introduction, part of dealing with Luke's prologue. Um, as we dive into Luke's gospel, Luke is the longest gospel of the New Testament, 1,100 verses, which means if we average 10 verses a week, and yes, I know some of you think that that's probably optimistic, um, 10 verses a week, we have 110 weeks in Luke, which is at least over two years. Um, you factor in um, Christmas and, and Resurrection Sunday and, and, and a topical message here and a series there, we're probably looking at the better part of three years in Luke, the better part of three years in Luke, and I trust it will be a rewarding time. And so this, this week, we're going to look at our second part. Last week, we looked at um, the authorship of Luke, who wrote it, and we figured out Luke wrote it. It's pretty easy. He falls out of Acts. He's the author of Acts. We looked at who was written to, Theophilus, an unnamed, most likely a Roman dignitary. We looked at its date. It's taking place um, before Paul's in release from imprisonment, before 1 Timothy, probably around 60, 61 A.D., um, and then we looked at Luke's stated purpose. So let's, let's just begin by reading the first four verses, Luke's prologue to his gospel, and then we'll see what we can find here for edification. Luke chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke begins his gospel with, with a prologue. It's sort of something writers do to introduce their writings. Luke is writing in probably some of the highest Greek um, not classical Greek, but certainly a more elevated style. Probably, as an educated man, we know he's a doctor from Colossians, the beloved physician. Having read and, and, and read things at a higher level, he begins this with more formal of an introduction. And as we look into Luke this morning, we're going to look just at three things. We're going to try to get a handhold, a condensed outline for the book. You can sometimes get lost and, and lose the forest for the trees we're going to look at a condensed outline of Luke. We're going to look at some distinctives and themes of Luke. We've got four Gospels. And yet each Gospel, although having much in common, all the Gospels ultimately focus on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, there are distinctives. And we're going to look at some of Luke's distinctives and themes. And then we're going to finish looking at those first four verses at Luke's stated purpose. That's what we're going to try to do this morning. Condensed outline, distinctives and themes, and stated purpose of Luke. So let's begin by looking at an outline. Now, the value of an outline is this. As we're going through a book, especially over what I've suggested will be three years, you want to have some idea where you are in the book. And so I'm just going to suggest for you a four-part outline that I think is helpful. In chapters 1-1 through 3-38, we deal with the, the 
birth story of John the Baptist and Jesus and the childhood of Jesus. That's, that's what those you know, three and a half chapters cover. Is. And Luke's gospel is unique in giving us the story of how the angel appeared to Mary, the story of John the Baptist's birth, the Magnificat, the childhood events in Jesus' life. And then, starting in chapter 4, verse 1, we get Jesus' Galilean ministry. And he's beginning his ministry. He's calling his disciples. But now turn to Luke 9. Luke 9. One of the distinctives of Luke's gospel is he devotes 10 chapters to Jesus' resolute journey to Jerusalem. Now look at Luke 9, 51. This is a turning point in the book. This is a turning point in the narrative structure. Luke 9, 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. When the days were near for him to be taken up, he set his face for him to go to Jerusalem. And the next 10 chapters of Luke record that resolute face set, not turning away, not turning aside. He's going to Jerusalem, and he's going to die. He's going to atone for our sin. And Luke's gospel is unique in drawing attention to that. It's a central point of the book. From all the way from 951, all the way flip over to 19, when he finally draws near, when he finally draws near in 1911, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And then in 1928, we have the triumphal entry. He actually arrives in Jerusalem. So from 950 to 1927 is Jesus going to Jerusalem. And as we study the book, we're to figure out why, why does Luke draw attention to that? Most of Luke's unique material occurs in that 10 chapter chunk. Jesus' resolute, steadfast journey to Jerusalem. And then from 1927, 1928, I'm sorry, to the end of the book is Jesus' passion and resurrection. It's his death, it's his burial, it's his resurrection, it's his post-resurrection appearances. So that's just sort of a handhold grabbing onto the book where we're at. So obviously we're in the first section. We're going to begin next week looking at the, the birth announcement of John the Baptist or Dipping or dunking John, John the Immerser, as I like to call him. Um, but we'll, we'll deal with that next week. But that's a condensed outline of Luke. It could be a lot bigger. It could be, probably it couldn't be smaller. But that's, that's about as small as things you can comfortably get for a condensed outline of Luke. So that brings us into our next topic. What are the distinctives of Luke's gospel? What does Luke bring to the table the other gospels don't? And one of the things we want to realize is we have inspired and important events that occurred 2,000 years ago in Palestine. And, and the Gospels are helpful for us to understand what happened. But what we have additionally is an inspired telling of those events. And it's a mistake to view the Gospels simply as windows to look at the events. We want to know about the events. We want to know what really happened. But what we have is an inspired, inerrant telling of what happened. And so Luke is going to present his material in a unique way. Luke's going to draw attention to particulars of the story that, that Mark or Matthew may not draw attention to. And so we want to keep our thumb on the text. We're studying Luke, after all, not just the events that occurred 2,000 years ago. And as we do that, a couple of distinctives and themes from Luke come to the fore. The first, we mentioned this last week, is that Luke's gospel is the fullest and by far the most detailed account of all four gospels, by far. And he says he's done research, he's closely followed the events. 
Only Luke's gospel has the story of Mary being visited by the angel. Only Luke's gospel has, has Zechariah in the temple encountering the angel. Only Luke's gospel has the shepherds coming to do homage to the baby Jesus. Only Luke's gospel has Jesus being lost when his family goes to Jerusalem. Only Luke's gospel has his post-resurrection appearances on the road to Emmaus. And Luke again and again and again gives us historical detail and flavor. Um, it's the work of a historian. It's the work of someone who's done research, and it is, is full through and through. It is by far the fullest and most detailed account. Luke and Acts make up the majority of the New Testament. Um, he is by far the, far and away, the single greatest author of the New Testament, word for word, verse for verse. Luke Acts dwarfs Paul's contribution to the New Testament. Fullest and most detailed. Secondly, Luke alone binds his narrative to secular history. And what I mean is this. If you just had the other three Gospels, you would know that these things happened, but you wouldn't necessarily know when these things happened. And you remember when we studied Zechariah. Zechariah goes out of his way three times in Zechariah to tell us when these things happened. Turn, turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke alone gives us the external dating ability. He, he ties it to external events, secular events, taking place, which really emphasize the historicity of these events. This isn't a fanciful tale. This isn't a wonderful story. This is true history. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Familiar verses, I'm sure you know. Verses 1 through 2, I'm sorry. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Now, there's the, there's the secular lord or potentate that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quinarius was governor of Syria. Now, we can verify that. We know when that happened. The reason why we're pretty sure, very confident, in fact, that the events took place, that Jesus was crucified, there's some argument about three years, um, about 30 to 33 AD, is because precisely of things like this. Turn to chapter 3. Verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor over Judea, Herod being tetriarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetriarch of the region of Eteria and Trachonitis, and Lysania, tetriarch of Albilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Now, do you get that historic detail? This is a man who's done research. You don't make up names like this if you don't know what you're talking about. Luke has researched, and he binds this to real history. These things really happened. We can go and check, because we know when these people lived. We know outside of the Bible when these events took place. And so Luke is locking his story, his narrative, into real space and time history. If it wasn't clear from the other Gospels, and I think it is, but if it wasn't clear from the other Gospels that the author really believed these things happened... That conclusion is inescapable from Luke. Luke believes clearly, beyond the shadow of a doubt, he is relating true history. True history. Not a legend, not a myth, true history. Luke alone binds his narrative to secular history. C. Luke's gospel highlights Jesus is shown to be a man of prayer. Luke records nine times that Jesus prays. Seven of those nine times don't occur in any of the gospels. Jesus is seen to be a man of prayer. Our great Messiah, our great high priest, our sinless sacrifice was a man devoted to prayer. 
And one of the obvious implications is if, if our sinless Lord was a man of prayer, how much more should we be? Let's just look at one example. Turn to Luke 22. Again, a very familiar example. But Luke highlighting these events, highlighting these aspects, drawing them to the fore. Luke 22 One example, Jesus praying for Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus is a man of prayer, praying for his disciples. Not if you are restored. Jesus is confident that because he's prayed for him, because he's prayed for him, Peter will survive. He is, a, he is a man of prayer. Nine different accounts of Jesus praying in Luke's gospel, praying for his disciples, praying to his father, praying for himself. He's a man of prayer. Point D, Jesus is shown to be the champion of the poor, outcast, and sinners. Luke's gospel has more and highlights more of Jesus dealing with the poor than any of the other gospels. In fact, the poor are mentioned more in Luke than the other gospels combined. Um, the tax collectors, every time they show up, they're seen as sympathetic people. Not that all tax collectors are sympathetic, but the ones who show up are. They're repentant. And so the people that you might expect to be the outcasts, the, the dregs, the, the ones we wouldn't talk to, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is seen as their champion. Champion of the poor, the powerless, the weak, the outcast, the unclean. It's another great emphasis of Luke's gospel. Jesus is this champion for the underdog, for the poor and the weak, the orphan and the widow and the sojourner. Luke point E accords a high profile to women in his narrative of events. Very high profile. If you think about the opening chapters, show us Mary and Elizabeth together. They show us um, Mary, Jesus' mother, her um, praise and prayer, the Magnificat. And then turn, turn to the end of Luke. Turn to chapter uh, 23. Starting in verse 55. The very first witnesses to the resurrection were women. Luke 23, 55, it was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and ointments on the Sabbath. They rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body of, our Lord, of the Lord Jesus. While they're perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? So, so women are central to the beginning of the story. They're, they play prominent roles throughout. They're, they're the first witnesses to the resurrection. They're the first to announce the resurrection as they go to the disciples. Oftentimes people can get this impression that Christianity squashes women. Well, Luke is absolutely um, willing, and he does put women in the forefront in their right roles, showing them how they have played a significant part, a critical part in salvation history. Also, we'll see that in Luke's gospel as well. 
And finally, point F, something we've already looked at, that Luke devotes 10 whole chapters to Jesus heading to Jerusalem. When we get there, we'll try. Why, why is Luke making this such a theme, such an emphasis, that no other gospels record this? Ten whole chapters of Jesus heading resolutely. He set his face. He's not going to turn away from Jerusalem. And I, and I trust when we get there, the Lord will uh, show us why that is so significant, that our Savior was not double-minded. Our Savior was resolute. Yes, he sweat great drops like it were blood. Father, if, if you're willing let this cup pass, but nevertheless, he knew what he had came to do, and he was resolute in pursuing his purpose. It also lets us know that from the gospel, starting in chapter 9, we're headed to the cross. We're headed to the cross. The cross is where this is going, and you know that clearly starting in 951. So that's a condensed outline, and just a sampling of some of the distinctive, some of the um, themes we'll find in Luke. Now, what I want to do now is go back to the first four verses of chapter 1, and look at Luke's stated purpose. Now, last week, he's got two purposes. He's got immediate goal and an ultimate goal. Immediate goal and an ultimate goal. If we read this, he says in verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account for you. So his his first goal, point A, to produce a thorough and well-ordered account. We looked at that last week. How did he do that? We did research. He consulted eyewitnesses. He, He looked at other accounts. But that immediate goal is ultimately just a stepping stone for his ultimate goal, stated in verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And again, it's just really helpful when an author tells us why he's written. And Luke says, hey, there's a lot of people that have have passed this on orally and written. There's a lot of people who have attempted to write these things down. I thought it good, since I've studied and followed all things from the beginning, I thought it good to put together a well-ordered account so that you might have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So your blank there, stated purpose, his ultimate goal, that you might have certainty. That you might have certainty. And i got to pause there because this is a concept that our, our culture really bristles at. Uh, you may have heard terms like postmodernism or relativism, but the wisdom of the age, shifting probably in the last 20 or 30 years, now holds that all knowledge is relative. All knowledge is, is constructed um, by societies. There is no such thing as transcendent capital T truth. And so our culture is wonderful if you want to have your own opinion, if you want to have your personal truth, your own, your own narrative, your own story, what's meaningful for you. But what our culture bristles at, what postmodernism bristles at, is the notion that we can be sure of something, that something is true and it goes outside of me and outside of my opinion. You've noticed that. That's, that's, where the, that's where the balking begins. That's why proselytizing and evangelism is frowned upon because it's not just that I've found something meaningful for me, but I'm trying to convince you of its truthfulness. I'm trying to, to get you to believe it. I'm trying to persuade you. I'm trying to change someone's mind, which implicitly means I think they're wrong. And that means I'm proud and judgmental. And, and of course, in the tolerant society, the one thing they will not tolerate are those who don't view their definition of tolerance the same way. 
That's the irony of the, the intolerance of tolerance, is that this new definition of tolerance where we tolerate ideas. The, the old definition of tolerance, maybe 30, 40 years ago, was best stated by Voltaire. It was the idea that I may detest what you say and think it contemptible, but I will fight to the death for your right to say it. We tolerate people. People are not to be censured. People are not to be silenced. People are allowed to speak. When they speak, we may robustly attack what they say. We may, we may aggressively attack what they say. The assumption being the truth will win out in the marketplace of ideas. 30 years ago, that's what it meant to be tolerant. If you were tolerant, you believed everyone had a right to voice their opinion. It's shifted now because now there is no longer a confidence that there is a truth that will win out. Now we tolerate ideas. So I'm no more right or wrong than you, and you have your perspective, and I have my perspective, and I, my perspective was fashioned from my upbringing and my Western culture and other people who were born in other cultures with other backgrounds. We need to be tolerant. We need to respect all backgrounds. If by tolerant you mean we need to let people believe what they believe and not coerce them into changing their faith, then absolutely we need to tolerate all faiths. But the new definition of tolerance means now we recognize all faiths and all perspectives as valid. What do you do, though, when you come across a gospel like Luke, where Luke says, I've written these things, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught? These are things that Theophilus didn't witness personally. We've already seen that they are passed down, handed down. These are events that he was not there to witness. And Luke is assuming, get, get the logic here, Luke is assuming that through a well-ordered account written down, a person can have certainty regarding events they have not witnessed, certainty regarding events they have not seen, a certainty such that they can build their life on it. And so we as Christians have got to think this through, this issue of certainty. Now, there, there's a danger because we can, we can pretend to be certain over things we are not. But we are not being proud when we admit that we're certain of these things. And I want you to keep your thumb here, but turn to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. I would actually argue that a mock humility that pretends uncertainty is actually a great demonstration of pride. I'm trying to make sense of that statement in a second, but turn to 2 Peter 1. See, the Bible again and again and again and again insists that it is true, and it insists that it is trustworthy. And Luke's prologue is just one example. 2 Peter chapter 1, let's start in verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. Just pause there. How often as a Christian is what you need to be reminded of things you already know to be true? Peter says, I'm not giving you any new instruction. I'm just reminding you. But I think it's important that I remind you of these things. Since, you know, since I know, verse 14, that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. He's writing down this book, he says, so even after he's dead, and he can no longer in person remind them, they can go back to the text and be reminded of these things. And then he begins to back up and give the groundwork for the trustworthiness of his account. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard his very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now what, now what Peter has just cited is the transfiguration. Jesus goes up on the mountain, he takes Peter, James, and John, he goes up to a high mountain, and there the, the glory gets revealed, and he, he becomes radiant in light, and Moses and Elijah are standing on either side of him. And in that context, God the Father himself speaks. And what Peter is saying is, we're not, we're not following cleverly devised tales. We were there. This is a book he's going he's to deal with in the second chapter. The false teachers are going to emerge, and the false teachers will have had visions. The false teachers will have had experiences. And what Peter's saying is, top this. I've got the, the creme de la creme experience. I was on the Mount of Transfiguration. I saw the Lord glorified. I saw Moses and Elijah. I heard the audible voice of God Come out of the sky, now get what he says in verse 19, because it is jaw-dropping. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word. I know not all of your translations bring this nuance out clearly. It's one of the reasons I love the ESV. They get this, they at least get this one right. What he's just done is he's put on the one side his experience, the Mount of Transfiguration, his audible hearing, the voice of God, seeing the glory of Christ revealed, And he says, we have something more sure than that, the scriptures. What he's just said is, what gives us more certainty? I mean, how many times have you thought, if I could only see God, if I were there, if I'd seen the the Dead Sea crossing, if I'd I'd seen the transfiguration, if I'd seen the, the loaves multiplied, if I'd seen Lazarus raised from the dead, then I'd believe. Peter says, he's had this great experience, and he has something more sure than that. He has scripture. God has given us his word to give us certainty. We have something more sure, the prophetic word. We have something more sure, the prophetic word. Now, you go a little further in 2 Peter to chapter 3, and Peter admits that there are sections of Scripture that are challenging to understand. And we would be arrogant, we would be proud and presumptuous if we pretended certainty on issues that we honestly have to admit they're kind of kind of piecing it together. He speaks that way about Paul's writings. Uh, Look at 3.14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Paul, brother Paul, also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. By the way, there's, there's the reference that Peter recognizes Paul is writing scripture. And so Peter admits, Paul has said some pretty challenging things. There's some hard things to understand in Paul. But when God has spoken and when we understand it, we are not being humble if we pretend it's not certain. We're actually being proud. Because think about it. God has superintended the transition of his word, the transmission of his word at every step. At every step, God has superintended it. So we saw last week that the holy men were moved by God, carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God's Holy Spirit supervises the writing of his word. But then, who has God given us, according to 1 Corinthians 2.14, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God? Whom have we received? Holy Spirit. 
So we have the author of the text dwelling inside of us. So the Holy Spirit makes sure it gets written properly. And then God gives us his spirit so that we might understand the things freely given to us. Which means then that when we understand something in Scripture, it's not because we're smart and it's not because we figured it out. It's because the Holy Spirit was pleased to reveal to us truth. Now, we've got to struggle and and wrestle and study to show ourselves approved. But at the end of the day, if you've seen something, if you've learned something true in the Bible, who gets the credit for that? God. So I want you to think about that. God has given you his spirit. He's given you his word. And his spirit has shown you something true in the word. You've come to believe, like Thomas, my, my my Christ, my God, my Savior, my God. You, you've come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He's not just a man. And you've come to believe that because the Holy Spirit revealed that to you. What type of arrogance does it take to pretend not to be sure of that, simply to please men, simply to fit in with the time, sign of the times? Well, you know, I, I think he probably is. My, my truth, no, it's true if you believe that. We have something more sure. We have something more sure than your own experience. We have something more sure than your own emotions and feelings. We have something more sure than eyewitness accounts. We have, according to 2 Peter, something more sure than the prophetic word. Go back to Luke now. Luke chapter 1. And this issue of certainty is crucial. Because Luke wrote his gospel. Theophilus has already heard some things. He's heard some accounts. He's heard a story. And what Luke says is he's writing this so that Theophilus would know with certainty that these things were accomplished. Not that, not that Theophilus would find a meaningful story in which he would find a part in that would speak to his inner self. He's writing this, he says, so that you might have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. I want you to get this as well, that if you have doubts, if you, if you struggle with doubts, if you've, if you've heard the truth and, and you, your faith is weak and you, like the disciples say, we increase our faith, the man who comes to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief, what you need is to look to the word. What God has done to give certainty is he's given us a word. Not an experience, not a feeling, not a sign or a miracle. He's given us his word. His word, this book was written so that we might have certainty. If you find your faith flagging and weakening, go to the scripture. Go to the scripture. I know I'm belaboring this point. I just want to go a hair further. Um, because this, this is crucial. And this is where so much of what is calling itself Christianity today differs. I was, I was having lunch with a professor of a local um, Methodist college. And he and I, um, I, use, I use Methodist in the loosest sense of the word. I think John Wesley would, would be the first to um, dis, well, anyway. Having, having, having lunch with this professor. And as we wind down towards the end, and we're trying to identify how we look at the Bible differently, I, I say to him, you know, um, aren't, shouldn't you be a little bit suspicious? Now, this, this, this particular Christian college, Christian, well, this particular college, um, is, is fully on board with all of the cultural and moral changes of the day. Fully on board. Um, celebrating recent Supreme Court um, judgments. Celebrating those things. Completely lock in step of the spirit of the age. And I said to the professor, he's a smart guy, um, shouldn't you be a little suspicious when all of a sudden, after 2,000 years of church history, we discover we've been reading the Bible wrong, 
And all of a sudden, what you think the Bible says is precisely what the culture thinks is right, just as the culture changed its mind. I shouldn't be a little, at least a little suspicious if all of a sudden I go, whoa, we've been getting this whole marriage thing wrong. We've been getting this whole gender thing wrong. We've been getting this whole, everything we got wrong. And what it means now is exactly what the culture shifted its meaning to in the last 50 years. Shouldn't you be at least a little suspicious? And he was honest enough. He said, okay, fair enough point. And then his sort of retort to me, shouldn't you be suspicious? I, I think what you're doing is you're offering people certainty when we now know there can't be certainty. I'd put that on a t-shirt, man. I would, I would, that, that was, amen. Guilty is charged. Guilty is charged. If the scripture means anything, it means that it was written to give us certainty. That's what Luke says he's doing. He has written these things that we may have certainty. Peter tells us that we have something more sure than experience. We have something more sure than visible signs and miracles. We have the prophetic word. And we've got to settle this, that if, if God has spoken, and he has, and if God has given us his spirit to understand what he has spoken, then it is not humility, but rather the height of ingratitude and arrogance to pretend it's other than it is. Now, we need to be gentle as we say this. We need, to be, we need to be humble in our approach, but we can't negotiate the fact that we believe these things are true, not just for us, but true. Capital T, full stop, these things happened. Which then brings us to, okay, what are we to have certainty about? And, and, and Luke gives us two categories of things. The first we see in verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished... Now, Luke is a gospel of things that have been accomplished. By comparison, go to the beginning of Acts chapter 1. Luke is the focus. There are things that have been accomplished. There are things that are finished. There are things that took place, and they're done. Go to Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit and the apostles whom he had chosen. So Luke then, I mean, Acts is a continuation of the things that were begun. Some things were finished. Luke's going to tell us those. And some things got started, and we're going to see those in Acts. Acts recounts, recounts the things that got started and were still going, still happening. The Holy Spirit had come upon the church. Missions were going on. The world was being gospelized. Those things had begun. Luke focuses on things that have been accomplished, things that have finished among us, which gets us back to the historicity. What Luke is saying is there are things that took place 2,000 years ago, and it's important that we understand they happened. They happened. They were accomplished. What types of things? Turn, turn to uh, Luke 4.21. And Luke's gospel will speak of a number of things being accomplished. Let's highlight four things. Four things. There's more than four. Three things, sorry, three things. There's more than three, but we'll look at three of them. In Luke chapter 4, we'll pick it up in verse oh, 16. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went up to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. And he has set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, scroll 
and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What are one of the things that have been fulfilled, according to Luke? Scripture. Scripture. That's your blank. Scripture. Again and again in Luke's gospel, we're going to see Jesus fulfilled the scriptures. Now, there are some scriptures he has yet to fulfill, and he won't fulfill until he comes again a second time. But in Luke's gospel, some of these events that, that were fulfilled or took place among us, accomplished among us, is the fulfillment of Scripture. We're going to see in Luke's Gospels, Jesus is the one who fulfills the prophecies of the Messiah. Those prophecies have been fulfilled. We're not looking for a virgin to conceive. We're not looking for a Messiah to come. Well, we are looking for a Messiah to come, but we're not looking for him to come in human form again. Those things have happened. They've been accomplished. Scripture has been accomplished. Luke's Gospel will record that. Go to Luke 9.31. Luke 9.31. Here's the transfiguration. Actually, we'll start in 9.28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. I don't know if your Bible has the footnote. The ESV does. Literally, they're speaking of his exodus. Moses appeared with Jesus to speak of his exodus, which he was soon to accomplish. So you're blank there. First, Scripture was accomplished. Second, Jesus' ascension. Jesus' ascension was accomplished. And when he ascended, he took with him a host of captives in his train, just like Moses leaving the exodus out of Egypt. So the Messiah came and he fulfilled scripture. The Messiah has ascended into glory. That's been accomplished. That's done. A little further, turn to Luke 18. What also has been accomplished? What events? Scripture's been accomplished. His ascension and glorification into heaven has been accomplished. Luke 18, 31. Sort of combining some of these threads together. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. What was fulfilled? Jesus' sacrificial death. Jesus' sacrificial death was accomplished according to the scriptures. There are events that are accomplished among us. They've taken place. They're, they're finished. They're over with. Messianic prophecies were accomplished. You can go to Dave Lample's class and learn about those messianic prophecies, but in Jesus' life and time, many of them are accomplished. What's also been accomplished, he's no longer in humble human form. He's, he's led his people free. He's led captivity captive. He's ascended and sits at the right hand of God the Father. Third, turn to chapter 24 now. Jesus' sacrificial death, his once-for-all death, has been accomplished. 
This is Luke's great commission. Matthew ends the great commission. Luke ends the great commission as well. Starting in verse 44. And notice that language of being accomplished. Then he said to them, These are my words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of the Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled or accomplished. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. What Jesus is saying is that you have a message to preach, a call of people to faith and repentance based on the things that were accomplished, specifically his death, his sacrificial death for our sins. So, Luke wrote to give us certainty, not just to give us a meaningful story, not to give us an experience that resonates with us, but certainty of things that took place 2,000 years ago that we didn't see. I mean, understand that in, in large part, your eternity, my eternity, depends on what you make of events that Luke says are accomplished that happened far away, long ago, 2,000 years ago. What do you make of them? Are you certain of them? What do you make of Jesus? Are you certain of who he is? What do you, what do you make of his death on the cross? Are you certain that even happened? And Luke's writing this gospel to give us certainty. It's the knowing for sure gospel. It's a great gospel for us because the next point we see and the final point we look at is certainty not just of what has been accomplished but of what you have been taught. What you have been taught. Luke's not telling this to Theophilus for the first time. Theophilus has at least heard some account. More than heard, he's been taught. He's been instructed. You know, we need to hear things again. We need to hear things again. And sometimes we need to hear things again. And again, how often is, is what you need, the encouragement you need, the instruction you need, things you know perfectly well, things you knew yesterday that you forgot today. So often in my life, what I need from encouragement is to be reminded, to be reminded. Luke's writing to somebody who's already been taught. It's again why I think this is a very helpful gospel, helpful word for us to study. You've come here, if you've been coming here, you've been taught, you've heard the gospel, you've heard about the death of Jesus Christ for our sins, you've heard about if we'll turn to him in faith, we can be saved. We need to hear it again. We need to hear it again because we need to be certain of these things. He's been taught. Turn, turn over to Acts. We'll close briefly just looking at Acts and... Turn to Acts chapter 5. The gospel is proclaimed, the gospel that was also taught. And in Acts 5, the disciples get released from prison. They're arrested and then they're released. In verse 21, when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. 
What we see throughout the book of Acts and the ministry of the Apostle Paul is that these evangelists go out and first they have a message to proclaim, they have a message to herald, to announce, but then of those people that that message, you know, they, they see something, they hear something, they begin to teach. And so, so we, we announce the gospel, we teach the gospel, and on Wednesday nights at Awana, the gospel is, is announced, the gospel is taught. Turn, turn to 2 Timothy, the importance of teaching and reteaching the gospel, teaching the, the, the life story, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here Theophilus stands in this long tradition of someone who's been taught, is being taught again the truths of the gospel, the truths of the life and death of Jesus. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, not your personal truth, what you've learned, what you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Men of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Luke's compiling his gospel. He's compiling his, his historic account of Jesus' life so that Theophilus would move from, from having vague ideas to certainty about these events. He's been taught. We, we continue to teach, and we're teaching again. If you've heard Luke's story before, you need to hear it again. I need to hear it again. We need to hear it again because we need to be certain. We need to be sure these things happened. And in the next two and a half to three years, God willing, we will grow in our certainty and grow in our confidence and grow in our, in our marveling at and worshiping the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you've not left us alone in this world, adrift and uncertain, but that you have given us a certain and sure word a rock upon which to stand. You have given us your promises, your testimony, your spirit to authenticate your word. And Lord, we don't want to be proud and we don't want to be arrogant, but we dare not pretend uncertainty over those things which you have revealed to us. We dare not pretend and feign a lack of confidence where we know for sure that there is one mediator between man and God, the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we are certain you have made this Jesus Christ both our Savior. He is our God. And so, Lord, help us to, to, to be bold enough to admit the certainty we have, to do it in meekness and humility. And, Lord, let us not cower before the wisdom of this age. Lord, Give us insight. Help us to see Jesus in your word. Help us to, 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 to see him more clearly, more fully, to grow in our confidence and our certainty. We believe. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.